Thanks, you guys. You know, when I, um, that song is actually an adaptation of, uh, of Psalm 51, and we're going to be talking about that in, in a few minutes. But when I, I first heard this tune, I'd actually, when I was a kid, I sang, uh, sang it to a different tune, a little bit more of a, of a um, not somber, but a little bit more of a reflective kind of tune. But when I first heard this tune, I, I, I said, you know, it sounds a little bit on the, on the glib, a little bit on the, a little too light for the subject matter, you know, confession of sin and asking for mercy and forgiveness and, and that sort of thing. And then I realized, no, I think it's a perfect tune because uh, David, who was the person who wrote King David, Israel's King David, who wrote Psalm 51, and then the person about 100 years ago who took Psalm 51 and adapted it into uh, those lyrics, I think there was real joy in their hearts because they found uh, forgiveness. They found uh, cleansing. They found freedom from the guilt that they had been encountering before they confessed their sins. And so there is joy and there is peace and there is, in a sense, happiness uh, when we confess our sins to God because we know that we have a God who loves us and who is eager to forgive us. And so that's why I I believe that that's a really appropriate tune uh, for that song. And, you know, and think about it this way. Ask yourself, when was the last time uh, that you felt guilty for, for something that you've done? You know, I think about for myself, and I'd say, you know, it could be in the last five or ten minutes. I don't know. You know, I mean, pretty much every day, I think there is some level of guilt that we as human beings feel. It's, it's really a universal experience for us as, as human beings. And some people will tell us that there's such a thing as false guilt and we shouldn't feel so guilty and, and, you know, and that sort of thing. I think there's some truth to that because there are times uh, when we do feel false guilt and there are people out there who are donors of false guilt. They are really good at helping us feel guilty for things that we've done or for things that we have not done. And in many of those cases, we don't need to feel guilty. But there are times when we should honestly, if we're honest with ourselves, we should feel guilty because we've done something that we shouldn't do. Maybe we've hurt somebody whom we love or we have failed to do the good that we ought to do. And God has given us consciences to remind us and to prompt us and and to help us to realize that we don't always live the kind of lives uh, that we ought to live. And in those cases, it's good for us to feel guilty because in some sense, it's like the dashboard warning light on our cars. It tells us that there is something wrong underneath, something wrong underneath the, the hood. Uh, and if we want to deal with our guilt, we can't just ignore it. We can't just pretend that it doesn't exist and hope that it goes away. Because in the same way that the check engine light in our car comes on because there's something going on underneath the hood, when that guilt comes into our lives, there's something wrong. There's something that's going on underneath. And if we want to really deal with that, we have to get at the root. And that's what's going on in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a psalm in which Israel's King David confesses his sin. He confesses his sin to God, and he finds freedom from his guilt. You know, and this week I thought about doing a different psalm, you know, given the situation that's happened with my daughter and her accent and all that. And I do want to do that, but not this week, because I feel like I need some time, I need some time to process what's been going on 
this week. I need some time before I'm able to share with you guys some thoughts that I have. And they're going around in my mind, and I'm praying through, and I'm working through a number of different things. And as I was thinking about that, I realized that was probably true for David as well with Psalm 51. David had committed, and we'll talk about it in a, in a few minutes, David had committed some, some pretty heinous sins. And I don't think that Psalm 51, I don't think that he wrote Psalm 51 right in the midst of what he was going through. It's written as if he were speaking it in the midst of what he was going through. But I think he wrote it afterwards. I think he took some time to reflect and some time to process. And then he wrote down this psalm uh, as a reflection on what he had done and a reflection on what God had done. So he wrote it from the perspective of a person who was going through this trying circumstance, and he wrote it for us so that when we're going through similar circumstances, we'll have, in a sense, a prayer or a pattern for prayer that we can use to communicate to God when we're not exactly sure what we ought to be saying. And that's so much of what the Psalms are for us. And we talked about it this past week. There are so many different kinds of Psalms, and they're so helpful in so many different occasions. And so here's one in which David, King David, Israel's King David, a man whom God had spoken of and had said, David is a man after my own heart. But here is David confessing his sin to God and finding freedom from his guilt and from his shame. And Psalm 51, like a number of the different Psalms, uh, includes a heading that summarizes the background of the Psalm. It starts, it says, For the director of music, which is an indication that this was intended to be sung, uh, a a psalm of David, so David's the author, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now, a number of you have probably read through the books of of 1 and 2 Samuel in the Old Testament. You're familiar with the life of David. But if you're not, uh, the incident that's talked about here is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. And it reads like something kind of out of a movie that we might see these days. You got King David, right? Most powerful guy in the whole country. And what David does is he uses his position as king to seduce the wife of one of his closest friends, a guy named Uriah. Now, Uriah had been incredibly loyal to David. He was one of David's 30 or four, what were 30 or 40, what were called mighty men. These are the guys who are kind of like his elite uh, soldiers who guarded him, who risked their lives on a regular basis for David. And so this is the guy whose wife David is trying to seduce. And David, of course, being the king, is successful at at seducing Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. Bathsheba ends up becoming pregnant, so David tries to cover it up by getting her husband Uriah to sleep with her so that people would think that Uriah was the father. They didn't have DNA tests 3,000 years ago, so he figured that, you know, hey, we can take care of it this way. Of course, that doesn't work out. So David hatches another plot, and in this particular case, David says we need to get rid of Uriah. So he sends Uriah out into battle, tells the commander of the army to put Uriah where the 
most difficult fighting is and then to pull back so that Uriah is going to be killed. This works. Of course, another several dozen men are killed as well. So what you've got is this situation where David has not just committed adultery, where he's not just stolen his, one of his best friends, his wife, but he's also committed murder. He's actually committed mass murder in order to cover this thing up. And at first glance, when you read through the story, it looks like David got away with it because nobody knew or if anybody did know, nobody's talking about it. But if you read through the story and if you read actually Psalm 32, we're not going to be looking at that today, you find out that David was racked with guilt because he knew he had done something wrong. He knew that what he had done was not only a, a, a sin, obviously, against Bathsheba and against Uriah and Uriah's family and the families of the other men whom he had had killed, but it was ultimately a sin against God. And so David is racked with guilt about what he's done. And so then this prophet named Nathan comes to David, and in a really amazing way, Nathan was just so brilliant in the way that he approached David. You've got to read it in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Nathan approaches David, and he says, you know what? What you did was wrong, and it is displeasing to God. And David's broken when he hears that. He confesses his sin. He doesn't hold anything back. He says, you're absolutely right. And Nathan says, okay, but God has forgiven you, and you're not going to die. Now, David still had to live with the consequences of what he had done. God did forgive him, but God didn't ameliorate all the consequences of David's sin. And for the rest of David's life, he had to live not just with the knowledge of what he had done, but there were some consequences to that. And again, if you read through the book of 2 Samuel, you can read about that. But at least, at least David was free from the paralyzing guilt that he had been feeling. And so then he writes Psalm 51 as a reflection for what God has done for him. And what I want to do is move fairly quickly through much of the psalm, but it gives you a feel for what's going on. And we'll stop at a couple of different points and look at it. And then we're going to draw some lessons from it for what we can do when we find ourselves in a similar situation because of sins that we've committed, whether they're, you know, whether they're sins that are similar to David's or whether there's something different. What Psalm 51 is still incredibly applicable to us today. So David starts off in verse 1 by crying out to God for mercy. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Notice what David's doing. He's basing his appeal on God's character. He says, have mercy on me according to your unfailing love according to your great compassion, not because I'm a good guy, not because I deserve it, but because of your character, because you're a God who loves, you're a God who is compassionate. So please, would you have mercy on me? Wash away, verse two, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So he starts off by asking God for mercy. Then he moves on and he begins to confess his sin. He says, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Let me just pause right there. It's interesting. If you read through Psalm 51, David does not give specifics about his sin. He's already done that when he's been talking to Nathan. He's already prayed that directly to God. But when he's writing down this psalm, I think he left out the specifics because I think he understood that I and probably most of us, if we focused on the specifics of David's sin, we'd say, yeah, but I've never done that. I've never stolen my best friend's wife. I've never 
committed mass murder. So this doesn't really apply to me. Yeah, it does. It applies to me. It applies to us as much as it applied to David. Our sins, our circumstances, the things that we've done wrong may be different than what David has done. But we are just as much in need of God's forgiveness, of his cleansing, of the freedom from the guilt that we carry as David was. And so that's why I think that David didn't give all of the details of his sin in that particular psalm. He continues on and he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It's interesting. He says, against you, God, and you only have I sinned. Wait a second. What about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? What's going on with that? And again, I think you got to remember, this is poetry, Okay? This is not like a theological treatise. If, if David were writing this as a, as a theology textbook, he would probably say something like, now I know that I've sinned against Bathsheba, obviously, and I know I sinned against Uriah and his family, obviously. But you know what? In comparison to my sin against you, those sins pale. And if we think about it, those are incredibly huge sins. So given the magnitude of those sins, David is saying, as big as those are, my sin against you, O God, is even greater than that. So he says, against you, you only have I sinned. So you're right in your verdict. You're justified when you judge. God, you're right. I have absolutely no excuse, David says, for what I did. If you ever read through any commentaries, uh, Bible commentaries that talk about Uh, Psalm 51, and talk about uh, the situation with Bathsheba, David's sin with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapter 11. You find some people saying that David wasn't entirely at fault in what he had done because what had happened was David was up on his roof walking around. He looked down and Bathsheba was outside bathing. David looks, says, huh, she's pretty good looking. Go get her for me, you know, et cetera. And one thing leads to another. And what they're saying is that it's partly Bathsheba's fault. And so David wasn't entirely to blame in that situation. But that's not how David saw it. David made absolutely no excuses. He didn't say, Lord, I know I was wrong, but She's a good-looking woman, and I couldn't avoid seeing her, and one thing led to another. I mean, we do that sort of thing all the time. You know, we'll say, I know I shouldn't have said that, but I wouldn't have said that if you hadn't done this, you know? Or, I'm sorry that I, but he, or but she. We're always trying to find some way to deflect responsibility and to make excuses. But David does absolutely none of that. And he doesn't do what we see all the time politicians doing. Mistakes were made. Like, okay, so mistakes were made. They weren't made by you. I guess they were made by what? Something or somebody out there who's not present in this particular situation. And David didn't say that that wonderful, meaningless phrase, I take full responsibility. First time I heard that someone saying, I take full responsibility, I was like, okay, so what are they going to do now? Well, I I read this uh, commentator who writes about this phrase. He says, don't you love it when a politician says, I take full responsibility? Translated into plain English, that says, now that I've admitted it, there's nothing more for me to do, such as resign, and nothing for anyone else to do, such as fire me. Saying, I take full responsibility is like a get-out-of-jail-free card in the Monopoly game. It's a way to actually avoid responsibility 
for what we've done. And David will have absolutely none of that. He didn't make excuses. He didn't blame anybody else. He says, I was wrong. And God, you are completely justified in saying that I sinned, that I disobeyed you, that I have brought disgrace and dishonor to your name. So David confesses his sin, no excuses, and then he turns to God and he asks God to forgive him. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Again, he's using metaphors because this is poetry. Hyssop was, was a, a plant that was used to sprinkle the blood on the, of the sacrifices on the people who were bringing them in order to be cleansed from their sin. And, and wash me whiter than snow. It's the, it's the cleanest thing that David can think of. So he's saying, make me whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. That's, that's David's reference to the guilt that he's feeling for what he's done. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. I was wrong. I have sinned. Would you forgive me? Would you cleanse me? But David knows that the issue is not primarily with his behavior. The issue is primarily with his heart. The root of his behavior is found in his heart. So he asks God to change his heart. He says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Yeah, David was bothered by his guilt. David was bothered by the consequences of his actions. But all of that paled for David in comparison to to the break that he had caused in his relationship with God. And it was because his heart wasn't right with God. So he says, give me a pure heart. Restore our relationship. Restore the joy that I once had knowing that you are the God who rescues. You're the God who saves. You're the God who delivers. You're the God who forgives. He says, God, cleanse my heart. Restore my relationship with you because that is the bottom line. That's what I need the most. He says, then, once that has happened, verse 13, then I'll teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. He's saying, God, once you've forgiven me, once that joy is restored, once that guilt has been replaced by joy, then I'm going to be able to tell other people. I'm going to tell them, when you sin, you need to go to God because he's eager and willing to forgive you. He wants you to come to him. He doesn't want you to hide from him. He wants you to ask for his forgiveness. He wants to cleanse your heart. He wants to create a new heart in you. He wants to restore that broken relationship with you. And that's essentially, that's actually exactly what David is doing when he writes Psalm 51. He's teaching transgressors God's ways. He's opening his mouth and he's declaring God's praise. But then we come to verse 16, 
verse 16 is a little bit problematic. It's a little bit troublesome because it seems like David's theology has gotten a little bit off here. Watch what he says. He says, God, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. If you've ever read through the Old Testament, if you've ever read through, say, for example, the book of Leviticus, and sometimes it's a little bit challenging to work your way through the book of Leviticus because the book of Leviticus is sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. It's all the rules and regulations that govern the lives of the people of Israel, of God's children in the Old Testament. And one of the things that they had to do is whenever they sinned, they had to bring an animal sacrifice to God in some sense to atone for or to make up for their sins. And so why would David say, God doesn't want my sacrifices? I think part of the reason is because if you read through the Old Testament, you find out that there was no acceptable sacrifice for adultery, and there was no acceptable sacrifice for murder. You commit adultery in the Old Testament, you commit murder, you're dead. That's it. There was absolutely no sacrifice that could make up for it. And David understood that so he could only fall on God's mercy and say, there is no sacrifice that I can bring to you to make up for my sin. So I throw myself on your mercy and ask for your forgiveness. You know, and sometimes, sometimes we try to do things to make up for the, for the wrong that we've done. You know, the husband who forgets his wedding anniversary, what does he do? Buys flowers for his wife, so to make up for it. You know, the the public figure who's disgraced himself or herself through whatever the situation is that they might have done, what do they do? They try to redeem their image. They try to redeem themselves by helping out the poor and helping the needy. They start a charity. They, you know, they on and on. We do things that we, we think will redeem ourselves. And in some cases, there's actually work in our human relationship. But I think what David recognizes is that, you know what? Bottom line is all of the animal sacrifices in the world, all of the good deeds that we could potentially do, none of those are sufficient essentially to make up for the offense that we've committed against God, whether the sin is big or whether the sin is small. So David's saying, you don't really want sacrifices or I'd bring them. You don't really want burnt offerings or I'd bring them. Because David understood that the only acceptable sacrifice, the only sacrifice that God wanted is a repentant heart. The only sacrifice that God wanted was a heart that was broken and who was looking to God to meet his need. Look at what David says in verse 17. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. David knew that God wanted his heart, not his animals. And that's why he said what he said. And then we come to the next couple of verses, which seem to completely contradict what I just said. And it's kind of fun to see this. Whenever you're reading through scripture, whenever you're reading through the Bible and you see these apparent contradictions, don't immediately assume that there's an actual contradiction. Assume for a minute, start with the assumption that probably I don't fully understand 
what's going on here. And that's what happens in verses 18 and 19. Watch what he says here. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. He's basically saying, would you bring prosperity to Jerusalem, the capital of Israel? Would you pour out your blessings on the nation? Remember, David is the king, and so when he's asking God to bless him, he's also, by extension, asking God to bless the nation of Israel. And then watch what he says in verse 19. He says, then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So which is it? Verse 16, God doesn't want sacrifices. Or verse 19, God does want sacrifices. Now, some of the people out there, some of the scholars out there say they resolve the tension by saying David didn't actually write verses 18 and 19. They were a later addition by somebody who was reading verses 16 and 17 and saying, you know what? David didn't have it quite right. He had kind of forgotten what was going on in the book of Leviticus with all of those different sacrifices. So this person later on added a couple of verses to kind of walk back or to correct what David was saying. But I don't think that's the case because I think what's happening is when you think that those verses don't fit, you're missing the whole point of the psalm. Watch, let me kind of walk you through just thought by thought what's going on. David comes to God and he asks him for mercy. He confesses his sin and he says, Lord, would you forgive me not because of my character, but because of yours, because of your unfailing love, because of your great mercy. And as you forgive me, would you change my heart? Because my heart is really the root of the problem. My sinful, broken, wrong-headed heart is actually the root of my behavior. He says, you know what? I know that there's absolutely nothing that I can do to make up for my sin. No amount of animal sacrifices can atone for, can pay for, can make up for my sin, can redeem me from what I've done. I know you don't want my animals, God. You want my heart. But Lord, once you have my heart, then, then I know that I can bring those sacrifices to you, not to try to earn your forgiveness, but because I've experienced your forgiveness They're going to be an expression of my gratefulness for what you've done for me, not an attempt to try to restore my relationship with you. Once you have redeemed me, then I'll bring those sacrifices as an act of worship and praise and gratefulness to you for what you've done for me. We shouldn't obey God in order to earn his favor We should obey God because we have his favor. God's favor, God's love, our relationship with him is based on his character, not ours. Because if it were based on our character, we could never be good enough. But he always is good enough. And that's why we can have a right relationship with him. And so that's why David earlier in the psalm says, you don't want my sacrifices You want my heart, but once you've got my heart, then you'll be happy to receive my sacrifices because they won't be an attempt to earn your favor. They'll be a celebration of your favor. About a thousand years or so after David uh, wrote Psalm 51, the apostle Matthew, who was one of Jesus' close friends, wrote a biography of Jesus. We know that as the gospel of Matthew. And in his biography of Jesus, 
he included a genealogy. We normally skip over the genealogies because it's so, you know, if you read it in the King James, for example, it's so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so, and you just work your way through. And every once in a while, you recognize a name or two, but you're really not sure, you know, what's going on and why it's included in there. But there's something really amazing that occurs in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. Notice whom he mentions among Jesus' ancestors. Verse 6, Matthew chapter 1, verse 6. Jesse was the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Huh. What's going on with that? In Matthew's day, uh, genealogies generally didn't include women. It was a patriarchal society, and, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, women weren't considered uh, to be that important in that particular day. So Matthew didn't have to mention Bathsheba. It was pretty unusual that he did. He actually mentions five different women. Someday I'd love to, to do a series of messages on the five women in, in Jesus' genealogy. Take some time and, and look them up. It's amazing to see uh, why Matthew includes those five different women. You know, so David didn't, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew didn't have to mention Bathsheba, and he certainly, he certainly didn't have to remind people of David's adultery and murder. Think about it for a second, right? Jesus is a descendant of David. Jesus is a descendant of Bathsheba. Jesus is a descendant of David and Bathsheba together. Jesus came into our world to redeem famous sinners like David. And he came into our world to redeem obscure victims like Bathsheba. And Matthew wanted us to know that. Neither David nor Bathsheba did anything to earn a place in Jesus' family. And neither do we. Our relationship with God is based on his character, not ours. It's founded on Jesus' sacrifice, not ours. And all God asks us to do is exactly what David did in Psalm 51. No excuses, No attempts to redeem ourselves, no good deeds to try to earn God's favor. All we need to do is come to him, confess our sin, confess our need, look to him to forgive us and ask him to change our hearts. Just like David did. Because our God is a God of unfailing love and incredible mercy. The apostle John, who was one of Jesus' closest friends as well, It gives us a promise in a letter that he wrote. He says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful, he's just. He'll forgive us our sins and he'll purify us from all unrighteousness. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we can confess our sins directly to God. We don't need to come to church to confess our sins. We don't don't need to talk to a, a minister to confess your sins. You can go, we can go directly to God, confess our sins, and be fully assured that he will forgive us. We can be fully assured that he is going to work in us to change our hearts. We can experience true freedom from guilt, not because we're ignoring it, not because we're saying it doesn't matter, but because we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the God of the universe has forgiven us. No sin No sin is too big to be forgiven and no sin is too small to be ignored because Jesus died for all of our sins. And so I want to encourage you, make confessing your sin a daily habit. Take some time each day, maybe at the end of the day, just before you go to bed, reflect on the day, think through 
what you've done, what you didn't do. Confess your sin. Don't hesitate. Come to God because he's eager to forgive you. And if you need some guidance for how to do that, take Psalm 51. I can't think of a better pattern to follow than the one that David gave us. That's part of the reason why God gave us the Psalms. We talked about this last week. God gave us the Psalms, at least in part, so that we would have patterns that we can use to pray in different situations. And I can't think of a better pattern than Psalm 51 to use when we're feeling the weight of our guilt and we know we need to confess our sin to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you're a God of love, that you're a God of grace, that you're a God of faithfulness, that you're a God of compassion, that you're a God of mercy, that you're a God of forgiveness. And I pray that we would not hesitate for one second when we sin. We would not hesitate for one second to come to you, to confess without excuses, without trying to make up for our sin, without trying to justify ourselves or redeem ourselves in, in, in your eyes. We would just throw ourselves on your mercy. And I thank you that we can be fully assured that you are eager to forgive us, to change our hearts and to restore our broken relationship with you. So I pray for all of us that on a daily basis, on a moment by moment basis, we would keep short accounts with you. We would be eager to confess our sins and to receive the cleansing and the forgiveness that you offer to us. And we pray all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm so glad to see you guys this morning and uh, love to say hi to you if you got a couple minutes to hang out up front. Thanks. <laughs>